Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast, giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. As ever, I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, sticky filmmaker and absolutely thrilled. And joining us tonight, she is the producer of such films as Cronus and Knucklebones, it's Laura Barker-McKee. Laura, hello. Hello. Laura, I just have to say, um, I hadn't seen this film prior to today and I now own it uh, in two different formats. I think it's entered my rotation and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, you are so welcome. You know, join the club because I also own it in two formats. And, you know, I'm waiting for the Blu-ray to come out. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so when I asked you to do this, you picked this almost instantly. Why? Um, because it is such an entertaining silly little film and it's just it is so much fun to watch we found it by accident my husband and i used to go back in the day to blockbuster video and pick out something we wanted to see and then something that we didn't know that we wanted to see and we found a lot of good films that way that we wouldn't have found had blockbuster not been around and we fell in love with it and we watched it a couple times and then every time we would have people over we would force them to watch it <laughs> and then we kind of built it into our movie night where we would have trivia and give away prizes and <laughs> it was just, that was our thing it was a real uh, it was a real discovery for us as well i mean i must admit i had declared this a masterpiece after about maybe five or six minutes <laughs> what was the point mitch that you realized that you loved it Oh, that's a good question, actually. I mean, we'll get into it. Yeah, sure, um, sure. In fact, maybe we should just address it as it arises. But um, I think that I think that the montage where they reuse the same three flashbacks three times each <laughs> was up there for me. Um, but yeah, we can get into that. But Laura, um, you've listened to the show before, I believe. Yes. Okay, so you might know what's coming next. Um, there is a possibility that um, some particularly reckless people will be listening to this having not seen True Third Air, A Critical Mass, which, by the way, is the film that you've chosen. A Critical Madness. A Critical Madness, Jesus, yeah, 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 yeah. fucking hell. Andy's put 30 seconds on the clock. I believe you've done that already. I have, yeah, yeah. You're um, quite right. If I count you in, are you willing to make an attempt at a, your best 30 second synopsis of True Third Air? Yes, okay. let's do it. Three, two, one, go. Okay, Mike Strauber catches his wife in bed with his best friend Jerry, and his coping mechanism is to go camping with a roadside hooker and play a game of truth or dare, and it drives him insane. Yep, yep, I'll take that. That's, that's pretty much exactly how it plays out. And some other yep. events happen. I mean, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, okay, I think we should jump right into this because I think that the um, the titles basically actually, well, Andy, when you're talking about how quickly I decided I was probably going to like it, I think that the titles might have been part of it. When it claims that it's uh, made by uh, the production company Peerless Films, which uh, I've got to be honest, I kind of agree with. I, there's not many films like this one. Which... No. Well, I don't know if you noticed, like the very first title title card said a gap production yep. d-a-f-f and i'm like they spelled gaff wrong 
Um, but the film was actually it was released by an adult film production company. Once it, once they were finished with it, that's who dis- distributed it. And the film actually made a lot of money, but Tim Ritter, the director, didn't see a dime of it because he was 18 years old when he made this film. What? Yeah. yeah. Kind of like got people to reduce it, and then halfway through they found out how old he was, and then did some trickery with the contracts, and and that was it. He almost <laughs> lost the movie. Yeah, I believe he was 17 when he started filming. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, started, it's based on off, off of a short film. If you can find the DVD, it's got some juicy extras, and it shows a little bit of the short film and some good behind-the-scenes stuff, and it's got a fun audio commentary with a couple of dudes who really had nothing to do with the making of the film. They just kind of show up and sounded like they got a little high and then watched the movie, and they just kind of roasted it with them. <laughs> nice. One of the guys is like, what it is, uh, when they were introducing him during the commentary, he's, he's like, a prison guard for three more days and a filmmaker, which really kind of pins down what it's like to be an independent filmmaker. So, yeah. um, it's maybe not entirely surprising that he said that this was put out by um, an adult film company, given that literally the first thing that we see beyond the credits is nudity and sex. Right. Yeah, uh, they just they go for it. They go right into it. Yeah, yeah. The, um, <laughs> this house is incredibly well insulated uh, when it comes to sound because. I mean, the same thing happens later on, um, but he wander and Mike wanders around his house for quite a long time before finding his wife in bed, and they are not being mm-hmm. quiet. And he's just, he's checking the mail, he's flipping through some catalogs, he's, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was the point, because obviously as the viewer, we know that, that it keeps cutting back to between Mike and his wife uh, enjoying some, some pretty intense sex for what this film is. I was, I was actually like, oh. They're really going for it here. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're into this. Um, um, but I felt, poor bastard. Um, yeah, just for colour. So we have uh, Mike, who we are introduced to uh, kind of uh, as a businessman saying business things into his business phone after driving home from a busy day of business. Um, his giant business phone. His giant yeah. business phone. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's the, twice the size of his head. Um, yeah, he gets in and uh, we find out eventually, or he finds out eventually, that um, his wife Sharon is in bed with his best friend Jerry. Jerry Powell's. His reaction when he sees her, when he, he shuts the door and, and then he opens it and it's just my, my most favorite crazy eye reaction of all time. He, well, he runs away kind of like a little bitch and, um, you know, it doesn't, I mean, you would think that he would have kind of been kicking some ass at the time, but I guess that was building in him. But yeah, he just kind of, he just kind of runs away. He just kind of goes to the door and he's like, I'm out of here. Yeah, but he, <laughs> he comes into that room once, twice, thrice, yeah. uh, before actually deciding to leave. And then she chooses the the weirdest time to have to try to have like a sit down conversation with them about mm-hmm. the failings in their marriage and how it hasn't been working for a long time. I mean, that's the kind of conversation that you meet and have in a coffee shop about six weeks later. Yeah, and then and then her advice to just find yourself some good friends and start living. I <laughs> know, <laughs> yeah, so incredibly fucking patronizing. Also, I have to say, I mean. I love the revelation when he sees that it's his wife having sex in the bed. He's stunned that it's her, but then his reaction to the fact that it's Jerry, uh, his best friend, is just as funny. And the fact that, like, obviously before that, his first impression was that two strangers had broken into his house to shag in his bed. No, it's it's uh, it's pretty incredible. I also think that this is the first of what I think is maybe about total maybe 17 minutes of footage of him driving. Oh, yeah, yeah. To, to music who could have only been inspired by Carpenter, you know. <laughs> yeah, pretty loosely, uh, and then uh, banged out quickly on an old uh, cheap Casio keyboard. Mm. 
Um, they get their fucking money's worth from that theme, though, don't they? Oh, yeah. they, they certainly do. <laughs> I, I've got to say, Mitch, you touched on it a minute ago, but I love the fact that rather than try to shoot three or four different flashbacks, I mean, they have two main flashbacks, but rather than try to shoot any more than that, they just keep using one of them over and over again and just extending it very slightly every single time. When really it, uh, the, 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 the objective seems to be that we get to see more of his wife in a bikini mm-hmm. and Bret Hart sunglasses. Yeah, I think that I think that um, I actually I don't mind it as an idea. The kind of like showing you the same flashback, but kind of feeding you more and more of it at the start, kind of thing. But it happens so quickly. Like I remember, like uh, when we got to about ten minutes in, I was like, about three of the ten minutes that we've been watching is the same flashback. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also, the other flashback at this point kind of takes place. Um, it's not the best way to watch two people eating their dinner, which kind of threw a fish tank. But that is uh, that that scene should have been all that he needed to see because his wife is extremely uninterested in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talking. well, <laughs> they, they 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 briefly go into her wanting to get another job with Jerry, <laughs> by the way, right. and and you know is that okay? And you know he's like, of course that's okay, but clearly that wasn't wasn't her real plan all along but then he talks over her at dinner and when she's trying to tell a story and you know just kind of i guess they're trying to express why she's unhappy with him but you know yeah i mean it very much seems that he's trying to block her from having not just a job with jerry but any job because he's mm-hmm. he sees it as he's doing quite well he's more than happy to kind of keep her in the lifestyle that she's become accustomed to and give her nice watches checkoffs wristwatch mm-hmm. yeah yeah yep yep <laughs> Um, so so yeah, um, I've also written a note here that uh, this is early on, obviously, saying that this is very strangely edited. Then I've scored it out and I've just written wow next to it, which makes me think that the editing got worse. Well, there were a lot of challenges with this film um, that caused them to have you know things edited the way they did, and, and in in the commentary. Tim Ritter is talking about how, you know, every other scene, he's like, well, I wasn't there when we shot this one. I was I was over here doing this. And, <laughs> and then, you know, um, there's a really, I mean, it's 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 funny to me. It wouldn't be if it was if I was in that situation. But he's talking about how their FX guy that they hired to do all of the gore scenes had kind of a mental breakdown in his hotel and kind of just, like, ditched the whole production. And they came to the hotel room and they found just this pile of goo and latex. It was all of his supplies that he was supposed to create these effects with. And he was just kind of like, see, I'm out of here. And so then they had to make the film with what they had, which was, you know, things from the hardware store and, and the grocery store and it explains a lot it does it yeah, certainly yeah. does but uh, we, we seem to very much have a case of uh, life imitating art here mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's kind of what happens in this film uh, in fact we rejoin Mike <laughs> at suicide point um, in his car uh, just and then an interminably long scene of him walking about on the beach Mm-hmm. Well, and that was that was also mentioned that they were they were trying to add some time when when you make your first feature and then you're finished with it and you go, oh shit, it needs to be you know 98 minutes or yeah <laughs> yeah there's well, a- five minutes so so then you add a whole bunch of you know reflection at the beach and driving down the road and you know conversations between the the spouses. Um, there's yeah there's a few there's a few uh, scenes in here. This is one of them, and I think probably one of the most egregious ones. Where it's like the original edit of this came in at seventy three minutes, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Almost certainly. Um, it also, in another flashback, if I th- in fact, I believe it's the restaurant one, um, it is seeded that he did have um, a mental breakdown a couple of years ago. Yes, Mike. Yeah, yeah, but he's fine now. Yeah, I can't, like, I can't imagine how that might reincorporate itself back into the story. I'm pretty sure everything's going to turn out great. 
Yeah, and then we get a flashback to young Mike on the playground. Uh, here, played by the Backstreet Boys' AJ McLean. Yeah! <laughs> that was... Hasn't sued them yet, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yet being the operative word, but um, yeah, an, an incredibly surprising troll through IMDb. Mm-hmm. Did you catch that whenever the children were freaking out over him cutting himself, that one child did like a like a Home Alone gesture, like a... Oh! <laughs> 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 Um, I just I don't want to blow past this without mentioning it. But she just like in the flashback in the restaurant mm-hmm. when um, he basically tells her that he's going to allow her to have a job, and he gives her the wristwatch. I also think it's funny that like he's like, so what was it you were going to tell me? And she's like, oh nothing. And I was like, were you going to tell him that you're having an affair at the start of dinner? <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to do that at the end of dinner. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like, yeah, you don't have to like tell somebody that and then have to just sit stone faced through three courses. Uh, you do it the minute your cheese, the, the remnants of your cheese board are lifted from your plate. <laughs> yeah, he gets back in the car at this point, almost shoots himself, does not. Yeah, Ogre's very fallen down. Yeah, I see some falling down stuff in here. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, it's at this point that he picks up the roadside hooker that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, um, sexy hiker who's happy to go wherever he is, uh, or wherever he's trying to get to. Kind of flying in the face of the protocol of being a hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, is she a prostitute? Because... You both, you both have said that. I have had her as a far more innocent hitchhiker. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm taking some liberties here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to call her a, a roadside hooker. Uh, but yeah, but they had it. She, she seems incredibly suggestible, and he kind of flies straight into it as well. In that he meets her, and I think before we've even learned her name, they are off buying camping supplies and disappearing into the woods. I'm, I'm, I'm also loving how I, I believe that the guy who plays the park ranger may have been one of the producers in the beginning who was giving him some money. I also thought it was really sweet that they gave him some actual lines in the movie. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they managed to make that character uh, incredibly subtly and letter-conscious. Mm-hmm. Always nice, a little bit of civic pride. <laughs> um, he talks at this, at this point again, like there's another really long speech here. Um, when he talks about how some people use drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism, but camping and campfires are his. Yeah, he likes to lose himself mm-hmm. in nature. Yeah. In, in, in his work clothes. yeah exactly um so the first of many truth or dare games ensues here this escalates very rapidly i love this almost all of it i love the uh the hunting knife that he's just kind of caressing while they're playing and i don't know if that if he's trying to be you know seductive with a six inch hunting knife with this young girl that he had just picked up but i mean seemed to work yeah, that's 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 what I do when I'm trying to heat things up. I seductively stroke a hunting knife. <laughs> You're doing it right now. <laughs> that's uh, why this isn't a video podcast. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, this plays out. This first game of Truth or Dare plays out very much as you would imagine a stereotypical m- man's version of Truth or Dare to play out. Um, she asks him to throw her, uh, his wallet into the fire. He asked her to lift her blouse. And, of course, she didn't really lift up her blouse, which was, I'm sure, disappointing to everyone watching it. Apparently, the producers wanted, she was she was hired to do the, a nude scene, and then at the last minute, she said she wasn't going to do it. Ah, okay. And she just wanted to fire her, but um, the director thought she was a good actor, <laughs> so he kept her. <laughs> they would work around it with the most awkwardly cut scene ever <laughs> it is so. it is really weird yeah that does kind of explain because I, I i just kind of assumed it was a choice but yeah when it kind of when it cuts the way it does when she loads her place up uh, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty bizarre i also think that he obviously thinks that the line of questioning that they're going to go for is going to be kind of sexy and um, when he says truth and then she's like do you still love your wife <laughs> and he's like oh fuck and then he gets then he gets all 
a little, he goes a little, he gets a little scary there. But he had also, whenever she was talking about playing the game, he's kind of creepy. He's like, ooh, you know, why not? And then he says, I'm not married anymore. But didn't they just break up like five hours ago? Yeah, this was literally his his first port of call. This was his um, first, this is his first interaction with another human after he found his wife bed with another man. <laughs> But yeah, she dares him to uh, pull his eye out. Uh, he calls her bluff, double dares her to do it, and uh, he spends this entire film producing unlikely items from unlikely places. Oh my god, <laughs> yes he does. Uh, the first of which being when he hands her a corkscrew, take her eye out here. And sh- mm-hmm. yep, and she does it. Um, although I'm pretty sure she's got an eye. It's worth, I think we also need to mention here, Mitch, that the version we watched wasn't the best quality. Well... <laughs> and then everything's okay. relative kind of way. Right. <laughs> like, there was a lot of it that uh, you couldn't really uh, make out, particularly as things got further into the distance. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting how, um, obviously, she has an eye. She pulls her eye out and hands it to him, and then the next shot of her, she has both eyes. And from a, you know, these four guys on their low budget, it was because they didn't have the money to do the core effects. But at the time, before I knew all that information, I was thinking, well, maybe this is the first clue that this is, is not a real person. Oh, no, I, I think I asked multiple times whether this was a dream. Yeah, I mean, like, mm-hmm. I, I, I um, when I realized, because, because, again, like I said, the transfer that we watched, I mean, it was the, it's the one that you can get on Amazon. Google, it was, I got it on Google Play. Google Play. So um, it was a transfer that we were watching on Google Play in the UK, and it, and the transfer was sufficiently poor at that point that there was a little bit of shadow around her eye when it cut back after the corkscrew, and I genuinely was, like, squinting at it, being like, is that eye still there? <laughs> it was definitely still there. I actually think it worked in our favor. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it probably preserved some mystery. But, like, um, yeah, I, I, um, I I kind of thought as well, I did the exact same thing that you did, Laura. I think I just assumed that they were going for some kind of surrealist thing as opposed to it being a budget shortcoming. <laughs> she then dares him to, uh, to cut his chest open, uh, which he does, and then he dares her to kiss him, which I think kind of pulls everything back by about 15%. <laughs> he also cuts off his finger, and then um, for the rest of the film has his finger the, the removal of his finger is brief yeah well i also loved his his performance whenever he starts freaking out and you know she's she's daring him to do things and he's like all right that <laughs> <laughs> was that was when it hooked me that was my moment okay yeah yeah, yeah. i think I, th- I think that mine it's probably somewhere in here as well where i was kind of like here we go the moment it had me was the three times he comes into the room to catch his wife having sex it is pretty amazing isn't it actually like <laughs> That, that 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 totally plays out like they were just like oh just uh, give us a few of them and he just did like three in a row and the idea was to choose one but they just left them all in there <laughs> well i did i did like in this scene where he wants to kiss her and then when she goes to kiss him and she comes back and he's seen his mother and then he comes back with a mouthful of goo which was pretty repulsive but it was it was effective and and fun and i dug that yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's absolutely. really cool. Um, another one of the dares, I think the concluding one, was that uh, she cuts out his... T- uh, she, well, he rips out his tongue, which I naively, in my notes, wrote, did not bargain on him having no more dialogue for the rest of the film. Right. <laughs> well, first, whenever he said, when he's talking, all of a sudden, so she's disappeared. She's no longer there, and he's sitting there kind of writhing around from cutting his chest open and then from cutting his finger off and having a mouthful of goo after making out with his mom. And... <laughs> Then he starts, he's having his full-on breakdown, saying, oh, you want me to kill my wife? You damn it, you ripped my tongue out! And then he rips his tongue out. <laughs> but that's where he, he, he once more utters the line, All right! <laughs> Laura, I mean, you're making him sound unhinged. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I love how right at that moment, the park ranger shows up. The bumbling park ranger shows up with his picnic basket, and he <laughs> he's bitching and moaning about campfires. I told you no campfires after 11. And then he sees him down there writhing, you know, in pain. And meanwhile, he's muttering. He's muttering like truth or dare without a tongue. Um, and um, the park ranger is no use as far as medical assistance. He's just kind of going, well, let me go get you some help. Or he lives in there laying there, doesn't bother trying to help him with his finger or his blood or put the campfire out. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of all talking no action here, but ultimately uh, he does get taken away to hospital, and at this point we have the first of a couple of uh, chronology jumps. Yeah, at the Sunnyvale Mental Institute. Yes. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> um, we have seen many, many portrayals of mental hospitals and mental patients in the films that people have chosen on this podcast, and this one is right up there with the best slash worst in terms of uh, sensitive portrayals of the medically insane and also me um, medical and professional negligence in <laughs> mental hospitals. I 100% I agree with you on this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I love the fact that um, uh, I, I just, I, one of my favorite kind of like logic leap and thing that you just have to get on board with possibly in this entire film is that patients from a mental hospital are just being almost arbitrarily released in, back into the wild because yeah. of overcrowding. Yeah, and the conversation that they're having, he's, 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 he's like, oh, there's this guy who beheaded his mother. And, and, you know, the other doctor is going, oh, yeah, yeah, I think the board would agree to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, and yeah, at this point, they've mentioned the fact that they've just released Mike Strauber. Yeah, they also make a point of mentioning that he has had incredibly successful speech therapy um, yeah. to correct. And he's doing great. <laughs> yeah, he's absolutely fine. <laughs> I was gonna say, to say the very fucking least of it, he's had very effective yep. speech therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and this is where we discover that this mental hospital has a uh, unique amenity of a parking garage attendant. Where they will tune up your car. They will, you know, they'll wash it down, they'll check the brakes, they'll do all that stuff, and then they'll hand it off to you. They'll throw the keys to you. That's, when we had that conversation, it was just like, when, when they had the conversation, he was like, oh, here's your car, driver, and uh, you got to go. And he and was like, does this mental hospital have a mechanic? He's all tuned up. He also calls uh, this this mechanic guy. Obviously, like I mean, uh, he's a bucket outside. He's not in there. He's not part of the the, t the kind of core medical team. So for him, it's appropriate to call a, a, a freshly released mental patient a booger eating wacko. Yes, <laughs> that's that's a, that's a, that's a good one. I love his name. And apparently, there were some some fans who had rented this film years ago. And they got the phone number of the um, director and for six months left him voicemails saying, you know, we want our money back, you booger eating wacko. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, in the, inter in the intervening 13 months, um, obviously, like, like say, things are turning out okay. You know, his tongue's grown back, his finger's grown back. Um, <laughs> he's kind of ready to reintegrate into, uh, like, into society. He's gone a bit Patrick, ba uh, Patrick Bateman. Right in the in the interim, in this kind of like slip back yeah. hair, kind of like a kind of well, I was going to say measured psychopathy, but only for a little while, a very short period of time, because he almost immediately hatches a plan to murder his ex-wife and uh, her boyfriend Jerry, who now appear to be living together. You know, I mean, that's that's the first place I'd go when I got out. Yep, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> Straight back to it. <laughs> um, yeah, um, he, he heads into the house, contemplate, contemplates killing her, does not, is put off by the beeping of the alarm from that very watch that he gave her in the restaurant earlier in the uh, flashback. He, st- he stands behind her in that kitchen for an awful long period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's pretty She's pretty oblivious. She's She kind of deserves to get to get murdered in her kitchen while she's making a cocktail from the alarm on her phone. Uh, you couldn't even be in my house without me being aware of it. I'm that constantly alert to, to potential threat. I think that it would be worthwhile to re-watch this from the beginning, but in your head, introduce the notion that everyone is either deaf or hard of hearing. Right. And see how much it explains. <laughs> yeah, from the extent to which people can kind of creep around undetected and to the extent that, that everyone is yelling at each other. Yeah. The entire time. I think mm-hmm. that, yeah, I think that that would explain quite a lot of the choices. Um, so Jerry dies off camera here, mm-hmm. which, again, I thought was a weird choice at the time, but now I guess I have more of an understanding of why that is. He goes to kill uh, Sharon, who slashes him in the stomach, narrowly escapes, calls the police. Um, he takes off, and I think that this was um, one of the things where, one, the quality or lack thereof of the transfer that we were watching really came to the fore, but also the extremely long shot for padding. Where yeah. he takes off, runs off into the distance, and I'm assuming just collapses on the ground. Yeah, absolutely no rush to transition out of any shot. <laughs> well, and then when they do have um, a close-up shot, um, the the guy, the, the couple who finds him on the ground, the one guy is like halfway off. He's completely cut off from the shot. Yeah, that was a choice. <laughs> the framing is, is, is horrific for about five minutes straight. Uh, yeah, it's, so, it's it's pretty strange. They're just like, oh, are you okay? And they're just like touching them here and touching them there. And they're like, well, we gotta go call somebody. And they're touching them some more, but they're not really doing anything. <laughs> no one in town knows how to, how to assist in a medical emergency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he ends up back in uh, back in Sunnyvale. Sunny, Sunnyvale? Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale. Yeah. Um, th- th- so it was a 13-day chronology hop that we get at this point, And he's back in there. So um, in as quick as he leaves. <laughs> sure. Um, the conversation that the experts have while he's oh, when you see him in the cell is absolutely amazing. My favorite line being, "Who knows where his twisted mind has taken him?" Yeah, I had to. You know what? I had to stop and I I like typed out the whole thing because I had to read it because just listening to her say it was not enough. And I was just going, "What the fuck are they saying?" For about five minutes. You're not to mention that you know they're they're stopping to have this in depth. Um, Conversation with the orderly, as if they would even talk to him at all, and explaining to him, you know, running down the case with him. And then at the end of the conversation, the orderly is saying, you know, hey, I've got him in a holding cell. Do you want to see him? And then the leading authority on brain disorders is like, no, but I'd like to research the case a little more. And then everyone's like, see you later. Um, We were talking about um, professional negligence in uh, mental hospitals in this film. He has smuggled in one kind of kind of small blade, one very large blade, one blade that's large enough for a man to cut off his hand. Yeah, with with like a, just kind of just a few hacks. Yep. and uh, also a hand grenade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, where were they keeping all that stuff? Yeah. Like, oh no. Well, he probably doesn't matter. But apparently, they don't really check him anyway. But he's not got it in nature's pocket, has he? Oh Christ. <laughs> I do love the uh, how uh, the shot where he's in the military and they're just kind of spinning around the room, and then all of a sudden you see these two weird faces, and you're like, "What the hell was that?" And then you come back and you see them, you know, that these two dudes are sitting there. I, I love that scene. Uh, again, I think this scene is—it's uh, I mean, not the best portrayal of uh, of uh, mental health issues, but um, 
It's, it's, it's almost as if sensitivity wasn't what they were going for. No, but it's incredibly graphic for what it is, and considering the, the budgetary restrictions and the, the issues with losing special effects artists to their own mental demons. The kind of the actual the actual what actually happens here is mm-hmm. remarkable. I mean, so obviously he, he kind of eggs again through the kind of format of a Truth or Dare game. He eggs on that old guy to hack off both a leg and an arm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But also literally feeds a hand grenade to a man as well. Yeah, yeah. He, he says to a guy, yeah. you put this hand grenade in your mouth. Um, and then the old guy, uh, understandably annoyed that on the surface of it, it doesn't <laughs> seem like Mike is playing along with the game, rather just calling the shots. He demands that Mike cuts off his own face, and he duly obliges. Mm-hmm. And we, we didn't even talk about the most dramatic scene in the film, where the doctors were talking about how the female doctor, what was her name, Doctor Evans? Yeah, that's right. Was all stressed because she's like, oh, "I'm out," and and uh, <laughs> the other doctor, he's like, "He's like, oh, don't be so hard on yourself." <laughs> and, you know, and I, not only is he giving her a pass on releasing this patient who, you know, who killed somebody, and, you know, meanwhile, uh, you know, Mike is handing out grenades and, you know, hunting knives to his fellow. Go on, you can see <laughs> it. in the other room. I love, I love the fact that, um, uh, yeah, she has uh, greenlit the release of this guy who has this extremely erratic mental history and has killed a couple people and things like that. And she's just like, I can't help but feel partly responsible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the whole scene's undercut for me by the fact that um, she announces here that Jerry's surname is Powers. And I laughed for a long time um completely forgetting that she's going through turmoil of her own yes of course um off the back of this we jump forward five months further in time which by my count means that we are now 18 months and 13 days from the starting point of the film (laughs) and he's now fashioned himself a super creepy uh copper mask to wear to hide his kind of deformities from his face slicing uh what do we think of this as an iconography thing i'm into it Uh, you know (laughs) <laughs> it's it, 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 it so wheels off at this point that what I think doesn't really matter. <laughs> I really, that, I really, that there is a metal shop in the institution. Okay, fine. Maybe. Maybe. But, that, you know, they, they're they allowing him to wear this mask, and, and everyone's just cool with it. They're like, yeah, there's old Mike with his creepy copper mask. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh... In an extremely triggering move, someone has the bright idea to leave a picture of his wife in his room. Yeah, what? yeah in a glass frame. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the man has easy access to hand grenades. A glass frame is the least of your worries. Well, I suppose yeah. that's true. Um, yeah, when somebody leaves the photo of his wife on his bed, he kind of cradles it like Gollum-like for a while before smashing it, hurtling himself into a wall. What I would say is, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> sure. I don't know what I make of this as a performance, but fair play, the guy is fucking going for it. Mm-hmm. What did did he do much else aside from this, Laura? Do we know? Um, actually, in a uh, ironic twist, he went on to be a casting director with Emmy nominations and Emmy wins for casting uh, some series. Wow, superb! Really? Okay, that's pretty cool. At this point, he kills an orderly by kind of uh, stabbing him in the eye with a pencil, <laughs> and then makes what is a successful but hilariously scattershot um, escape attempt. <laughs> By the way, he he encounters a, a guard on the stairs and um, kind of kicks him over a railing. That's an incredibly ballsy stunt. Yeah, yeah. 
It's pretty. I, th- I think it's, it's pretty strong. Um, also, he breaks away in a car at this point, and um, he hilariously kicks a man in the face as well. Oh yeah. Doesn't he kind of, he kind of like? Sl- he almost like slides over. It goes a little Magnum PI at one point, where he's kind of you know feeling his his inner seventies cop. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he takes off in a vehicle, and um, Andy. Yeah, talking of scenes that are incredibly triggering, given yeah. that I've got a five-week-old son, uh, he does. Uh, career his car through a woman crossing the road with a pram, um, obliterating the baby, which is... I mean, if I hadn't just had the baby, I would have laughed. Mm-hmm. But we were, we were we were literally <laughs> sitting... Uh, we were literally, when we were watching this, we were sitting watching it. Um, it was me, Andy, and uh, Andy's wife, who was holding Andy's five-month-old son. <laughs> she very protectively just kind of held him a little bit tighter and stroked his back. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty traumatic. And also he reverses over the mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did laugh at that. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> um, well, you know, she, she, was, she was kind of a kind of a hag. I mean, after he cuts himself in the beginning and he goes over to her and a normal mother would be like, oh my God, what happened? And she's like, oh, Mike, you need new friends. <laughs> been waiting his whole life to run it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My favourite character in the whole film is introduced at this point. Same. Detective Rosenberg. <laughs> yes. You know, he's a, real, he's a real cop. He was a real retired cop who became an actor. No way. He, he, do you know? Yep. He feels it. He feels like he is. I would say potentially, possibly the best performance in here. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think definitely. he's pretty great. There's, he does a lot of a lot of shit and call it be shithead and it's like it's it's a yeah it's it's um, it's pretty amazing. I he steals the show. Oh, absolutely! Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely does. I also think that like um I love I love his kind of like uh just constantly just being fed up with the shit like never really acting reacting much more than that a lot of the time. He kind of just like he greets the news <laughs> that like um an, a mental patient has escaped and killed a bunch of people the way that I would if my train was delayed. <laughs> yeah, and he's and, and he's doing like no police work. He's pretty much just you know you know sighing and 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 being irritated at everyone who's involved and like oh jeez you know he did this and he did this ah. <laughs> he's also extremely kind of old and out of shape so like, you can kind of see why he's a bit well he can't really be bothered with any of this uh, but he helpfully recaps everything that's gone before at this point around about the halfway mark yeah it's a total uh previously on truth or dare yeah. <laughs> now there's one point where he's like running down a list of the people who've died and again he's just you know he's he's just put out and he's talking to somebody on the phone who's supposed to be helping out like another officer and he's chewing him out because he's mad and he's like you know he's mad because the, the guy's excuse for not being able to come help out in this crisis is that they've got a family and he's like oh you know he's just, it's, just i just love it i just love it it's it's pretty amazing also at this point mike is driving and has a run-in with what i'm assuming is supposed to be three like kind of air quotes punk kids who seem to have a combined age of about 120 (laughs) (laughs) it's it's very like discombobulated kind of hard to keep up with what's happening seems like they kind of jump from one fight to the next (laughs) but you know with some colorful characters sprinkled in (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. From here on out, things get really fucking hazy for me. Well, there's huge fireballs. There's all sorts of massive kind of set pieces here. Like this car chase devolves into a fireball. Um, the kind of ring- ringleader of that group of like um, adult kids uh, <laughs> is uh, shot to pieces by a submachine. Like Mike's got his hands on a submachine gun now, um, and he's not afraid to use it. 
Um, and then they believe that Mike is holed up in a shack. And uh, I think this might be when we first meet Officer Purnell. I tell you, just before, I don't want to blow past the fact that I think that it's one of my favourite moments in the film when Mike f- just fires a machine gun freely into the flaming wreckage of an auto explosion. Into a flaming mm-hmm. man. Into a flaming man, specifically. Yeah. yeah. Pretty powerful stuff. <laughs> but yes, Purnell. Officer Purnell, uh-huh. and, and actually Purnell and and um, Rosenberg and the dynamic between the two of them is <laughs> my favourite thing. Like Purnell goes over and above here in his attempts to capture this. I mean, it's understandable. This man is leaving a swathe of destruction in his wake, and uh, Purnell thinks it's a good idea to burn the shack that he's hiding down in. Right. This is this is right after moments after he was hiding behind a riding lawnmower. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> cover. <laughs> also it looks like yeah. a really small uh, lawnmower mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you know but but yeah I, I like his style he just he just uh douses it with gasoline and shoots into it and then and then as it's burning he's he's screaming and slamming on the hood of his car going burn burn you son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> and then rosenberg shows up to yell at him he's like you shithead you and Rosenberg says to him, uh, uh, where does it say in the police manual that you can corner a suspect and burn him alive? <laughs> Shrugs. <laughs> it took me ages to figure out that Purnell was a police officer because of his jeans and Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the fire department shows up and they spend about five minutes um, hosing down a shed that has already stopped burning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also definitely real firemen. Yeah, definitely real firemen, because oh. their performance was pretty was pretty spot on. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was pretty cool that the medical medical examiner shows up and does the inspection on the scene. He's oh, like yeah. got like you know um, like a ruler or something out, and he's like measuring the teeth, and he's like, well, the bite's consistent, you know. <laughs> it, it turns out it's the town drunk, you know, that they were able to tell that just from you know his his. 10 minutes inspection of a completely burnt up crispy body within the wreckage that's probably also doused in water and yeah. riddled with bullets and <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, and at this point somebody has still checked on the cop the cop that had been shot at the beginning of the scene that Purnell found like Purnell drives up on the scene and there's a police car and there was a cop laying on the ground who had been shot this is before Purnell you know blew up the little shed and meanwhile you know this cop's just sitting there no one has done anything not you know, not the firemen not the cops i mean seriously you guys don't ever get injured in this town no because nobody can help you um although I mean, I everybody is a little bit cut up at the death of uh the town drunk uh, drake tanner um, um so you can see why their attention might be focused elsewhere um, I like the fact that the forensic pathologist who successfully identifies him as the town drunk, the charred remains, um, looks like he's just come from like a fancy dinner engagement. <laughs> he's like dressed trousers, a white shirt and a bow tie on. Um, oh, Mitch, if you're wondering if a, a little boy gets uh, chainsawed in a drive-by chainsaw attack, you'd worry, wonder no more. Wonder no more. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, it does. That's ha- That happens right next. Um, yeah, potentially my favourite of the Rampage victims, I think, the drive-by, cha- the, the, uh, drive-by chainsaw child. <laughs> you know, even, even though you would expect it, it was still so unexpected. <laughs> yeah, and then they really spend a lot of time watching that child die. Like gurgle up blood, which I believe was ketchup. <laughs> that checks out. The consistency looks about that. Sure. At this point, he also randomly kills three people on a park bench, which um, just pulling the machine gun from his armory again. We get the first of a couple of incredible songs here. 
uh, that all center around the center around the words critical madness. This time it's just kind of like dramatic falsetto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, not a patch on the uh, the grand finale, which we'll come to. Mm-hmm. There's more insight into Rosenberg and Pernell's relationship here, um, when uh, Rosenberg determines that what Mike is planning to do is return to his house again. As Laura said, that's the first place she would go. Yeah. Um, and again, attempt to kill his wife. Um, but uh, they decide, right? We've got to go. We've got to go now. Now's the time. We've got to go. And um, of course, Pernell has lost the car keys. <laughs> So again, gets his mm-hmm. ass chewed out for being a total waste of space. Yeah, he's a man. Uh, <laughs> work there for Rosenberg to finally, finally get from point A to point Z that Mike might be going to get Sharon at this point after he's all, you know, killed all these other people. <laughs> yeah, it's just taking him this long. And I absolutely love that they show Purnell showing up in a cab and asking for cab fare. <laughs> love that. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty great. Um, but yeah, at this point, Rosenberg denounces Parnell as a shithead and uh, takes matters <laughs> into his own hands. Mm-hmm. Or kind of tries to, anyway. Um, because, yeah, we're heading, heading towards kind of final standoff territory because Mike's heading for Sharon's house. Um, he knocks over a woman's trash cans at this point when he gets out of the car. <laughs> and um, I love the fact that, like, uh, when he gets out of the car and she's kind of shouting at him and stuff and she sees a guy with um, a copper face mask on who sure. goes into the back of his car and produces if i'm not mistaken a submachine gun nunchucks a mace yep um and i think possibly a machete a machete, a, a machete. And, oh, and all the while she's yell, she's telling him you know i know your type parties raping girls sex 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 and you know she's demanding to apologize or move out of here, which is just the dumbest thing to say to somebody yeah. where you tell them to move out of here, or I'm going to call the cops. I cheered when he smacked her in the side of the face with the mace. I was like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I had an incredibly satisfying donk noise. <laughs> also, it, like, it's, the whole dialogue is so bizarre. Like, all you copper face murderers are the same. <laughs> <laughs> They're dime a fucking dozen, aren't they? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I quite like the fact that just shortly before she gets maced in the face in this until the whole situation, she just kind of like her final kind of thought on is, "Why did I move to this neighborhood?" <laughs> um, so it's it's time kind of for the face off between the face off, if you like, between uh, Mike and Sharon. Mike slices the door down um, again. Ch- Sharon, who I am convinced is deaf, um, is shouting, doesn't hear this happening. He doesn't slice the door down much. He painstakingly chainsaws the door in half. Like, slicing implies something quite quick and with a knife and quite a clean cut. This is a chainsaw. This is extremely loud. Yeah, it's pretty heavy duty. Yeah. <laughs> I really like what happens here. I'm going to. I'm quite happy to admit that I didn't see it coming. Also, but... quickly, just sorry to interrupt. Oh, do, no. you, do you not believe that she would have moved from that house by now? Like, from the house where she lived with her estranged husband and where her estranged husband came and killed her living boyfriend? Well, Especially considering how 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 lax the mental institution is, what <laughs> is? I would have found another town to hang out in. Yeah, absolutely. I would have left it all behind. Yeah. Yeah, I would say I think I probably would have tried to exercise those demons pretty quick. All it takes is another budget crunch, Mitch, and he's back in the street. <laughs> no. It's another 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 round of deep government cutbacks. Yep. Uh, yeah, there's a fake out here. Uh, you think that uh, he's about to Norman Bates her in the shower. Not so. There is a man waiting. An armed man. An armed man who, when the curtain pulled back and he shot Mike, I looked at him and I thought, I should definitely know who that guy is. 
it was it was it was Dr. Thorne. <laughs> That's what I suspected. That's what I said to you. But the quality of the the transfer again was so poor that he just was a man with a beard. I, I was like fifty fifty on who it was. It I might was... have been you. <laughs> <laughs> he genuinely looked like you know, you know, like if as if it had been kind of like on a crime show and his face had been pixelated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of looked yeah, like that. Doctor Thorne. Doctor Thorne. But it's all for all because Sharon's dead anyway. Right. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone in the interim has become the hero of the piece and killed her. Uh, Rosen- Rosenberg arrives here, and I think that this is where this really well, this is pretty baffling stuff. This is excellent stuff. This is Rosenberg here showing that he is the undisputed MVP of this film by managing to talk down the sociopathic killer. Like literally talk him onto his knees. Well, he's been shot multiple times, so <laughs> standing's probably quite a chore. No, no. <laughs> it's the incredible persuasive power of Rosenberg. Well, this is, also, Purnell leaps out of the shadows and screams he's got a gun right at the pivotal moment when he's trying to talk the man down. Uh, Purnell runs everything. Yeah, this is the, this is the most Keystone Copsy moment in the whole thing, I think. Oh, I don't. It think It really that. is. I, I disagree. I think the moment he loses the car keys has got to be oh, the one where he's, yeah. where he's at. I mean, that's an extremely time sensitive moment. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. I love it. At this point, we have. So the ambulance shows up. Yeah, ambulance number three, by my count. <laughs> Mm-hmm. that makes been since the start of this thing um and i love the fact that the ambulance turns up and um mike gets taken away and we don't see him again that's the end of it for kind of for this purpose but the last actual character interactions that we see is rosenberg just reeling off everything that parnell's done wrong it's amazing he reams him out in the street he also says he's bringing charges against them yeah what do we suppose they might be as Ooh. he should yeah. Being a shithead. <laughs> Multiple counts of being a shithead. I think he demands his gun mm-hmm. and badge as well, yeah. um, as as you would expect. Credits at this point after a brief <laughs> stop off at um, Sunnyvale Mental Hospital. I've got to be honest, I was so fucking happy when it cut back to Sunnyvale and it went like beep 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 beep. Again, I was like, <laughs> yes, you fucking yes. Here we go. <laughs> because like, I literally just said if this cuts back to that hospital I'm going to be so fucking happy and uh, it's exactly the payoff I hoped it would be <laughs> I need to talk about this credit song go on Kay Reed and the Church of Our Saviour Choirs uh, Critical Madness um, putting me it put me over mind of like Whitney Houston's greatest love of all I, I thought it was Bond-esque I, you know, I had forgotten about the song until the very end scene and then the credits were getting ready to come up and I was like, oh yeah! And I remembered it and got all excited and then I started trying to see if I could find, you know, a video on YouTube that played the whole song and, you know, it came up short, but still, yeah. it's. I mean, it's amazing. Also, I I, I was kind of enjoying watching the the, the characters and the, uh, obviously the actors going by and, and the credits. Um, the one that stood out the most to me um, was I noticed that going by I can't remember the exact point where this character appeared but um, there was newscaster voice played by Asbestos Felt yeah. and that's also the guy who puts the grenade in his mouth and blows up his rubber head what? yes they made another film together that the actor who played Rosenberg was also in called Killing Spree that's, that's ah. the one that uh, Asbestos Felt was also in and also the actor who plays Ro- Ray- Raymond Carbone is I believe the actor who played the uh, the cop. Okay. So, and that's another film. That I see. Okay. And with that, we're out on Truth or Dare. Well, and- we are. Yes, that's true. But there's multiple sequels to this. Yeah. 
so Laura, we didn't know anything about this film until you suggested it. What is your knowledge of the sequels? Um, I have not seen the sequels. I, I don't have any reason to do that to myself. Um, <laughs> I kind of want to just like bask in the glory of this one and not ruin it. Yeah, you know? I can, I can, I can kind of see the wisdom in that because they are almost certainly going to be terrible and not like uh, yeah, and, and kind of the wrong kind of terrible you suspect. Yeah. 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 Andy, first watch for you. Concluding oh my thoughts? Um, my concluding thoughts is I, I would absolutely urge everyone out there to seek this out and, and watch it because if you like a bad film, then to be honest, this is up there with films like like Troll 2 and like Birdemic. Like, I don't know why this film isn't mentioned in the same breath as those films. Mm-hmm. It absolutely demands your time. And it's actually probably more fun than those films that I just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's that's a fair assessment. I mean, like, it's not uncommon, Laura, for me to have no, been for me to be watching films for the first time when people pick them for the show. In fact, that happens, I would say, in like ninety percent of cases. I normally I normally kind of find something in there to like, but I normally don't take to them nearly as quickly as I did with this. I think that um I was kind of I kind of had a good feeling from the very beginning, but I think that from the from the kind of uh, triple reaction shot when he finds her in the bed at the start right the way through, I think that like this this is a riot, but it's also criminally underseen for a kind of like beers, pizzas, and bad movies thing. Um, I I I, I, like, I can't believe mm-hmm. more people don't talk about this. Yeah, and I was doing a little bit of research on it, and I found a clip from the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, where Elijah Wood yeah. was saying that it was the first horror film that he'd seen and he absolutely loved this movie yeah he was five years old i believe <laughs> which uh is, is i think about the right time to see this there's no wrong time to see it <laughs> but no um uh, laura this was a great pick i think i think that the listeners to this show are gonna have a great time with this yeah and uh like we said wow. it's it's out there you can get it pretty much youtube google play you can get it in most places mm-hmm. and amazon in the uk certainly has the, a dvd available for about three quid because i just bought it Straight in. Laura, before we finish up, um, obviously we talked a little bit earlier on about the fact that um, you've produced a couple of films like uh, Knucklebones, which obviously was a huge deal, um, kind of a word of mouth smash when it played Fright Fest back in 2016, which is when we first met. Yeah, and we had Mitch on the show. And we had Mitch, yeah, we had Mitch himself on the show um, back on episode six. So yeah, a really long time ago. Uh, you've got something really interesting in the works right now. Um, well, my first feature film that I produced from a creative end, uh, Cronus, is supposed to be released spring of 2020 Mm -hmm. and i'm really excited about that this is a film that we made a long time ago and it was you know it was a pretty low budget film you know it was it was pretty ambitious i think we did some cool stuff with it but you know it took us a long time to finish it because it was the first film that me and uh the director derek presley was our first official feature um i had worked on knuckle bones a few years before but that was i was hired on to work after they were like ready to shoot i was hired at pre-production stage right um and so cronus is about a genius recluse with amnesia awakens in a creepy lab to find that he's built a machine that extracts memories from the dead and he uses his research and notes to discover you know who is he and then he as he finds out who he is from all this research, he realizes he's he doesn't like who he is, and he's trying to use the machine to rebuild his past by picking and choosing some of the the better memories that he had recorded. Right. And one of the stars is Tom Zembrod, who was played Knucklebones. Right. Knucklebones. Okay. And we premiered at Phoenix Comic Con, 
And like I said, the release date for VOD and DVD should be around spring of 2020. Cool. I'm excited about that. Yeah, excellent, excellent, yeah. great stuff. And um, yeah, but when we were kind of when we were talking and kind of arranging this, you mentioned something that you're working on regarding the film uh, Empire of the Dark. Yes, that is Empire of the Dark is a film that my dad made in 1990. My dad, Steve Barquette, and it has become a bit of a cult classic for not for the reasons that uh, it was made. Okay. <laughs> but, Excellent. But in this in this spirit of of, uh, of fun, we are um, we're having some screenings. It's actually going to be screening at the Bristol Bad Film Club on November twenty first. There are two shows, um, and all the proceeds are going to help Bristol's homeless. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's foundation. So if anybody is in Bristol, they want to go check it out. And then, you know, I'd love to hear what they think about it. Um, and then I'm hosting a screening tomorrow night in Dallas. My brother is going to come out. Uh, my brother was one of the, the stars in the film. And we're going to do that screening. So that should be fun. Cool. That sounds awesome. That sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah, we did it. We did after after um, you told me about this and um, I told Andy about it. We looked up Empire of the Dark and it looks like a riot. <laughs> you know what? There's uh, demons from hell and ninja assassins. What's not to like? Uh, uh, having only last night just revisited Ninja 3, The Domination, that sounds right up my street. Yeah, very on brand for you at the moment. Very on brand for me at the moment. I'd love to get a screening of that sorted for Glasgow. Definitely. <laughs> Laura, where can people keep up with you on social media? Um, You can find me on Twitter, Laura McCoy7. And I'm pretty sure Laura McQuay one through six are also me, but I'm technically challenged, so with the, I can't kind of figure out the the account. So anyway, but yeah, Laura McQuay seven, and um, I really don't do a lot. I haven't done a lot with Twitter. I'm trying to kind of get a little more active with it. So most of my posts are complaining about kids and stuff like that. But I'm getting <laughs> trying to add some more interesting content to it. Um, you can find me on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram. And, and that's about him. Wonderful. That's about, yeah, Laura. <laughs> again, I cannot thank you enough for bringing this film into my life. Um, I am going to. Uh, I mean, and with other bad films, I would say subject people to it, but um, I'm going to enrich people. Open their eyes. I'm going to open their eyes, mm-hmm. and and uh, and thank you for being a part of that. All right. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad <laughs> I could share it with you. So I would say one of the more convincing victories that we've had so far. Oh, I fucking love that film. And please, everybody, go and watch this film. It's fucking <laughs> excellent. <laughs> it really is fucking brilliant. Big thanks to Laura for stopping by, talking Cronus, Knucklebones, Empire of the Dark, and Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness. A Critical Madness. I don't even understand that, but it's, <laughs> I'm fine with it. No, no, it's fine. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's just about it then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sadly. Yeah, you're just going to head straight back through and watch that again. Yeah, I kind of feel like I could talk about it all day. I kind of <laughs> need to, to speak to someone else that's not you about it. I honestly cannot wait to hear what you guys think of this one. Uh, me, me neither. Like, uh, you, please, please, everyone watch it and tell us what you think. And if you want to do that, there's loads of ways you can. Facebook and Instagram, Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. And you can also email scenes at gmail.com. But I've never wanted to shake a director's hand more. <laughs> Andy, where can people listen to us? Loads of places, Mitch. And uh, the easiest place to find a list of where you can listen to us is on our website, strongviolentpod.com, mm-hmm. where you can also find information relating to live shows as and when we are planning them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're Wheel, always planning. We're wheels all... are turning on those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can also find links to our tea public there, where you can get, still weirdly, on-sale t-shirts. I don't know how that works. I don't know either. I don't know how t 
tea public decide when it's time for a sale. No, I was going to say, if you think that we're being exceptionally generous for the prices in the store right now, we're not. We don't make that decision. No, we don't. And, I mean, ultimately, for the money that we make off it, it's not fucking worth it. No, us. I mean, like, just, just no, like, fire in there. But there's, like, I think there's, like, six designs in there. So if you want to go in and get yourself uh, get yourself some merch, do some repping, yeah, you can do please. that. We would love that. And it's nice to see people cutting about in context pink t-shirts and Mitch's bitches t-shirts. Yes. Uh, uh, lovely yeah. stuff. And speaking of things you could do to support the show if you're feeling generous, whatever platform you are listening to us, if you could drop us a like or a subscription or a review or a rating or something like that, then uh, those things make a huge difference and we appreciate everyone that we yeah, get. Also, I'd like to know where you're listening. Yeah, I'd be curious about that too. Yeah, if yeah. you just let us know where you're listening. And if it is iTunes, then that is certainly the one where the reviews are most... Uh, weighty aye it seems that way definitely definitely yeah. but most of all thank you very much to everybody out there once again for listening yeah we love you yeah we now actually have like uh, kind of quantifiable proof that there are a few of you so thanks <laughs> <laughs> we will be back of course on Monday with another mini-sode yes of course doing all the usual stuff we'll be talking about what we've been watching we'll be mapping my progress through the shockwaves 100 and a whole load of other fun stuff including of course Mitch's pitches. I've got my image ready and I think uh, I think you'll like it. Oh, excellent. Good, okay. <laughs> and thanks to everyone who's already sent across their pitch suggestions for this week. Those are some absolute corkers and everyone leaning quite heavily into the... A similar kind of... Vein to mine. Yeah. If, yeah. For want of a better word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're back on Monday. We would normally leave you with a little bit of advice, but instead we're going to turn things around a little bit and leave you with the soothing sounds of Kay Reed and the Church of Our Saviour Choir and Critical Madness. This is fucking great. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.
You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean. <laughs>